0: John 17, verse number 10, Jesus is talking to the Father. We pick up in the middle of his prayer when he says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now watch this. He's about to pray for you. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they John 17 is often referred to as the unity chapter in the Bible, and I wouldn't really argue with that, but let me tell you what I'm becoming more increasingly aware of as I've been studying John 17 off and on for months, just really compelled to to dig through the words of Jesus in this prayer to his Father. I'm finding that he is actually highlighting something a little bit more often in John 17 than he is the oneness or the unity. I don't know if you picked up on it, But he keeps mentioning glory 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 his glory the father's glory the glory that he imparts to the children of the father to to us to Christians and he's mentioning this over and over and over again and it's not independent of the other theme of John 17 which is unity he actually ties our unity together as Christians to his glory Both the manifest glory, but it's deeper than that. He actually is indicating, and I'm going to show you this around verse 22, he's actually indicating that unless and until our lives fully become about his glory, then we cannot have unity with each other. Now, I'm going to unpack this in a couple of different ways this week. One is the message tonight, but if you don't get it tonight, I want to encourage you to read uh, the blog on transforming truth tomorrow. I've already written it. It'll be up at about 5.30 tomorrow morning because I take a little bit more time to unpack it. I think God's showing us something here. It may not be new truth, but it may be refreshed truth. And so let's look at the scriptures tonight and let's see what they say. I hope I can read this because I did not bring my reading glasses up here. So may there be an unction on my eyeballs, amen. I need it tonight. Let's start in verses 10 through 13 this evening and just very simply as Jesus is praying he's praying a lot for us in this passage a lot for his followers he prayed for our shared joy three things i want to talk about concerning his prayers for our shared joy with each other first of all it's here's the foundation of it jesus deeply cared and cares currently for his followers look at what he says to the father he says All mine are yours, meaning this, Father, all of my disciples ultimately are your disciples. And Father, your disciples are my disciples, and I am, watch this, I am glorified in them. Watch this, Jesus says, on the earth I am glorified in those that the Father has given me. And he says this, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And then he says, Holy Father, watch this, keep them in your name Which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Let's pause here for a minute. There's so much theology in this that it really could, if we let it take up the rest of the night together. I'm not gonna let it do that. But Jesus is about to go back to the Father. He's going through the corridor of the cross, suffering, sacrifice, the substitutionary death on the cross. He's going to be taken down from that cross, placed in a tomb. Three days later, he will rise from the tomb, and he is going to eventually ascend back to the Father. And there is actually an element of excitement in Jesus, the Son of Man. As a matter of fact, over in John chapter 14 and verse 28, he actually says to his disciples, I told you I was going back to the Father, and if you loved me, you would actually rejoice on my behalf. Jesus began to get very excited. Please don't stumble over that. He began to get very eager for the reality that after 33 years on earth, he was about to go back to the Father. But before he left, he wanted to intercede for those that he was leaving behind. And he says, Father, I am asking you to make them one. They are one in Christ, but make them one. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying, Father, what they have in position, let them live out practically. Lord, what you've given them by making them one with me and one in you, I'm asking you now, make them to be one with each other. So what does that mean? Well, let me give you three quick things here. It it, it indicates, our oneness indicates an, an unequaled mutual love. As Jesus and the Father shared an undiluted, constant, unbroken, equal love, Jesus is saying, I want them to be like that with each other. It's not only that mutual love, it is the unity of a common purpose. A common purpose. The Father gave the Son the plan to fulfill. Jesus said early in this chapter, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me with your own self with the glory that I had with you before the world was ever created. But it is that mission Jesus delighted to do the Father's will. And so it was a shared purpose between the Father and the Son. And Jesus says, now, make them one. And so, as we are one in Christ, we'll not only have that mutual love, but we'll also have that shared purpose. And then he, he speaks also of this, this mission. Jesus' mission was to redeem fallen mankind and to destroy the works of the devil. You'll find that clearly stated in the New Testament. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And Jesus said himself, I have come to destroy the works of the devil. And so in that same vein as we are working together in oneness and we are glorifying Jesus with our lives, we should have the expectation that in that oneness we will complete the mission that Jesus began. Now, this may cause some of you to struggle, but I want you to get this. Jesus didn't finish the full comprehensive plan of the Father while he was on earth. He finished the work that God gave him to do. But when Jesus left, he left us, and he said, now I'm giving you work to do. And so Paul was able to say later in in uh, some of his writings, he would say that he would make up what was lacking in the work of Christ. Now, that used to really bother me because I didn't understand it. But all Paul was saying is, I am picking up where Jesus left off as a follower of Jesus. So our oneness affects not only our love for each other, not only the shared purpose of bringing Jesus glory, but our oneness is also um, incumbent that it's necessary for us to complete the mission that Jesus gave us to do. And he'll tie that back in in a moment. So he deeply cared for his followers. And what he's saying is, Father, I want them to care for each other in that same way. Second thing, verse 12. um, His presence unified his followers while he was on earth. Look at verse 12. Jesus, again, talking to the Father in the presence of the disciples, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, those which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except Judas. He is the son of destruction in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So let's just hang here for just a moment. While Jesus was on earth, part of the responsibility— part of the the, the mission that he was on was all whom the Father gave him, Jesus would guard them and keep them. While Jesus was in the presence of the disciples, he not only guarded them from the devil and the world and and other things that we'll talk about in a moment, but he actually kept them unified. That's what he's saying there. He's saying, I have protected them, I have not lost them, I have kept them, and I have guarded them. And so when we're thinking through this, one of the things that we don't often talk about is that Jesus and part of his mission was to to unify all of those followers when they were in his presence. Do you remember the bickering that the disciples got in about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom? Do you know why that happened? Well, it was because they were outside of the presence of Jesus. And then Jesus comes in and he says, hey, boys, what were y'all talking about along the way? He didn't ask because he didn't know. He asked because he wanted them to know that he knew. And so, ultimately, the, the fighting stopped. The jockeying for position stopped. The disunity stopped. Why? Because the shepherd was back in the presence of the sheep. Tim Keller wrote a great book. You need to read it if you never have it. It's called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And Tim Keller is a theologian, but he was also a shepherd for many, many years. And he said one of the things that he noticed the most is that when he was away from certain sheep in the flock, that this certain couple of sheep, every flock he ever had, there'd always be a couple of sheep that when he stepped away from the the, the greater flock, those two sheep would start hitting each other right in the head. They'd start hitting each other. They'd go at it. And all it took was for that, that shepherd, Tim Keller, to walk back into their midst and they would go from butting heads to just sitting there happy what happened when the shepherds in the presence of the sheep the sheep know better than to fight and so friends one of the things that jesus wants us to realize is again as we continue his mission one of the parts of the mission that is not often highlighted is that we are to keep each other unified in him we are to actually shepherd ourselves so that we are never part of that headbutting. We are to guard the flock. We are to protect the flock. And Jesus, every time He was there, He unified His followers. The third thing is this thing of joy. He sought to provide joy for His followers. Look in verse 13. Jesus said, but now I'm coming to you. I can almost literally just see him smiling in joy when he says that. I'm coming back home, Father. And these things I speak in the world. Why? Why did he say these things he had been saying? So that the disciples would have Jesus' joy fulfilled in themselves. I don't know that this gets enough press. We know that the fruit, part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And I'm not sure we all have the same um, definition of what joy is. But ultimately, let's just assume that we have a basic understanding of what spiritual joy is. You can be joyful sitting there and not saying a word. You can be joyful standing on the back of your chair shouting with your hands in the air. You can be joyful with the biggest smile on your face or with tears running down that same face. So we don't need to define it just by its manifestation, but we do need to understand this, that it's actually important to Jesus Christ that his followers live with joy. That's actually important to him. Why? Well, we're going to find out in a minute that our unity and the revelation, the manifestation of how we love each other and our relationship with each other is actually a tool that he uses to awaken lost people to the reality that he loves them. Now, it's really hard for a person who's a non-believer to want what we have if the constant revelation of what we have is misery, Is despondency, is murmuring, is complaining, is woe is me. If that is what comes out of us, then that's not very attractive to those who don't know Jesus. They might say, why do I need Jesus? I can be as miserable as you are on my own. I don't need any help from your God from that. And yet when we are in unity and when we are walking in joy, when this prayer to Jesus, a prayer from Jesus to the Father is answered, our lives can be characterized by a level of joy that will actually be a supernatural tool that God uses to awaken the people in our lives to the reality that we have something they don't have. Scott Johnson witnessed to me at work in the early 1990s for two straight years I mean, he did everything that a good Baptist—he was a Baptist, a soul winner—would w- do. He he, he left gospel tracks everywhere. It was like confetti, man. I mean, everywhere I went, I had a gospel. I, I would go into the bathroom stalls and there would be a stack of gospel tracks right there in the bathroom stall. He'd literally stick them in my lunch in the refrigerator. So everywhere I was, I was reading these gospel tracks. But let me tell you what ultimately really made me want what he had. It's that I watched him for two years consistently live with a joy I knew was absent in my life. And I thought, man, that guy just gets on my last nerve with all of his gospel music and his gospel tracks and his thumpity-thump-thump-thump on the Bible and all of that stuff. But man, I tell you what, I can't argue with it because he's got something I know I've never had in my life. And so the pairing of the Word of God and the joy of Jesus ultimately awakened me to my need for Christ. Now remember again, Jesus had already said a few chapters earlier, I'm going back to the Father and he's looking at his disciples and they're like, what do you mean? What's going on? You're going to leave us? What are we going to do? Where are you going to go? And Jesus says, if you guys really knew what I was about and you were really Jesus lovers, then you would actually be really happy because I'm giving you the best news that I've ever said in my life. I am going back to the father. And so that joy that he was feeling and that essence of being able to be in, in absolute proximity to the father, he says, I want you guys to have that. I want the joy that you're going to be with the Father one day to be the same joy I'm having right now as I'm just hours away or days away from going back to the Father. I I want you to be able to live in unity and oneness and live for my glory so that you will have that same heart-stirring joy. Now, that's great for the disciples, but it's also great for me and you. Because, friends, listen, ultimately, all of you who are believers in Jesus Christ in this room, look, you've got a date with destiny. You've got a date with dust. You're going to leave planet Earth. You're going to—our lives physically on Earth have a termination date. And so we will. It's appointed unto all of us once to die. But ultimately, that death is nothing but a doorway that ushers us into the presence of the God who rejoices over us, Zephaniah chapter 3, who loves us, who has been shepherding us and providing for us. And yet the world can get so dominant in our thinking and the trials and the struggles that we can lose our connection with the reality that all of this is going to get wrapped up in the not-too-distant future. I mean, I don't know if you're happy about that or not, but, man, I'm, I, I figure if, if, I, if I break the odds, I might have another 50 years on earth. That means at the most, in 50 years max, I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus And Jesus says, good, Jeff, keep that joy because I want that to infect the people around you. So let's move on into verses 14 down through verse 19. He not only prayed for our shared joy, but he also prayed for our shared identity. Now, this is really what I hammer out in the blog tomorrow morning, identity. God's glory and our identity. So let's start first of all with this. I want to talk to you about what you share with every single believer. It doesn't matter if they're younger than you or older than you. It doesn't matter what color their skin is. It doesn't matter what, what tribe or tongue they come from. It, it doesn't matter if they vote the same way you vote every four years in a November election. None of that is, is where our identity is. Jesus is our identity. That's just the bottom line theological truth. And, and I believe that one of the calls right now on the church, especially the church in this region, is God is calling us to intentionally and um, persistently retain our sense of identity in Jesus that we are being bombarded from all different corners of our culture to root our identity in lesser things, lesser glories. And I'm going to... I've made my commitment to the Father that this is actually a new challenge that I sense I'm getting from the Father. I want to grow. Never make the mistake of thinking that, that, that ministry ushers you into a place where you don't have to grow anymore i'm telling you i want to grow more now than i've ever wanted to grow in my spiritual life before why because i've tasted and seen that he's good and it just wants me to makes me want to taste more and more and more and so as we're looking at this i realize okay i want my identity to be unassailable in you i want my identity to be never wavering never vacillating and yet our culture wants me to be identified by a lot of other things you too, what what you look like, there's your identity. Your race, there's your identity. Your political affiliation, there's your identity. Your nationality, there's your identity. Uh, how much money you make or don't make, there's your identity. What kind of clothes you wear, what kind of car you drive, what neighborhood you live in, where you are and what part of the, the country you're from. Are you a Yankee, are you a rebel, are you a West Coast wacko? I mean, all of that stuff. Forgive me all my California friends, but uh, this all of this identity crisis coming upon the church. And I just see Jesus standing, unfortunately, sometimes in the background. And and he's saying, children of God, I am your identity. I purchased you. I rescued you. I saved you. Why would you live for lesser glories? So what does that look like in this passage? Well, all Christians, first of all, this is what we share In this identity because we belong to Jesus all Christians are opposed by the world we have I'm going to talk about to you about our common enemies in this moment verse 14 down in verse 16 Jesus says to the father I've given my disciples your word I've given them your word what's the result of that the world has hated them why because they're not of the world and Jesus says just like me they're just like me Abba that I'm not of the world, just like me, they're not of the world. And then he says again in verse 16, they're not of the world, just as I am not in the world. What does that mean? It means this, when, when we come into our identity in Jesus, that means we jettison, we leave off all other lesser identities. And literally, you have to do that. Not it's, it's not something, God does do it for you in the sense of positionally, but it, it is of no use to you until it affects your mind, until you're convinced and renewed in the spirit of your mind that my identity is that of a son or a daughter of God that I am accepted and beloved in the sight of God, that I am complete in Jesus Christ, that there is now therefore no condemnation upon me because I am in Jesus Christ, that I am as welcomed in the presence of God Almighty as his only begotten son Jesus is because I am in Jesus, therefore I am as acceptable to the Father as Jesus is. Therefore, it doesn't really matter what my skin color is. That's not my identity. Let me. I didn't get to unpack this on Sunday as much as I wanted to, but the amount of pressure in our culture for us now to. To make our unique and foremost identifying marker to be our race. Therefore, if I'm white, I better think like a white person, act like a white person, vote like a white person, protest like a white person. And, and if I dare to say anything that might give, um, you know, credence to things that black people, Hispanic people, Asian people think, act, say, or do, or prioritize, then all of a sudden, the, the, the culture says, well, you're not acting within your identity. Well, actually I am because my identity is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ actually loves all races of all people. And so we don't have to identify by our race. We don't have to identify by our socioeconomic uh, background. We We don't have to identify by the way we were raised. See, ultimately our identity is who Christ says we are. And I'm going to tell you, it's a breakthrough season in your life when you just make up your mind that Jesus wasn't messing with you when he told you who you are in him. And if you don't know what all he says about that, well, he's saying right here in this passage, I've given them your word, Father. Now, he wasn't referring in that moment to a completed canon of written scripture. That's not what Jesus was referring to. He was referring to the perhaps the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but ultimately the Rhema word, the revelation that Jesus gave while he was walking among them. And so we have not only the Rhema word and the ability to hear from the Father in the moment through the work of the Holy Spirit but we actually have the objective word of God. And the objective word of God will define you to you. And one of the joys of reading the scripture is that the Holy Spirit, who is still the teacher, who will teach us all things according to what Jesus said. Jesus said, when the comforter comes, he will lead you into all truth. He will teach you all things. So we don't have to wonder if he'll do it for us. He said he would. And so you open up your Bible and you you can say this, Lord, my foremost goal is I want to know who you are. So, you've given me the word, Jesus, set me apart, sanctify me by the truth, for the word of God is truth, tell me who you are, and the Lord, one of my joys would be to learn who you say I am, so I can properly relate to who you are. And instead of us wandering around aimlessly in this fallen culture that is so demonically um, influenced and all of the, the the pressure from the world coming at us to be this to act this way to achieve these goals to live for these lesser glories think about the the just the demonically doctrinally erroneous things that the world tells us it tells us that money will make us happy have we not learned that that's not true yet then why are so many people still living their day in and day out? If I just get a little bit more money, I'm going to come into my own. No, you're not. You're still going to be lacking identity. You'll just have the ability with more money to express that lack of identity in more creative ways. So they they tell us sex and pleasure and and all of the experiences of the the, the hedonistic impulses of our flesh. Just get in touch with those and you're going to be happy. My friends, come on. You don't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the people who indulge their flesh are not exactly happy. As a matter of fact, you hit this wall. I remember I was 24 years old before I was saved, and I lived for pleasure. I wanted pleasure. And what happens is you hit this wall where you really can't experience much more, and all of a sudden you're aware, I've done about everything I can do, and I am still hollow. I am still hurting. I'm still empty, and yet our culture says, no, you just need to live for pleasure. And the list goes on and on and on. And Jesus just kind of whispers over that. He says, Father, for all of these that are going to believe on the word of my disciples, and because they believe the word of my disciples, they're believing on me, and because we'll assign them, uh, we'll assign them their identity, I'm, I'm just asking you, Father, let them know they're really not of this world. They're not of the world since we're not of the world, Christian friend, let's not be of the world. Since we're not, let's not. Since our identity is not in this world, let's not try to find our identity in this world. And here's the thing, that can become a crisis moment in a lot of people's life. We'll said, Jeff, if I, if I don't live for money and if I don't live for pleasure and I don't live for my own fame, what do I live for? because we have been so indoctrinated by our culture that that's what you live for, that it really brings a lot of people to a crisis saying, well, what am I supposed to do then? Well, that's the adventure of walking with Jesus. Because by the way, Jesus doesn't mind if you have money. Jesus doesn't mind if your name gets elevated as long as you are always keeping his name above your name. Jesus, does not, he's, Jesus is not anti-pleasure. He's just anti-sin, And there's only pleasure in sin for a season, but there are pleasures evermore at the right hand of God. And so, man, this is flowing tonight, and I don't know if anybody else is getting it. I'm getting blessed by my own preaching tonight. That doesn't happen often. So what I'm trying to say is you you and I already have everything we, we need. We're just letting the world talk us out of it on a daily basis. And so what do we need to do? We need to set ourselves apart. We need to be sanctified by the truth. So get down into verse number 15 with me. It's not only that we are all opposed by the world, but all Christians are fought by Satan to some degree. When I say Satan, it's not necessarily him personally every time, but is he and his fallen angels. Verse 15. I think it's 15. I don't know if my glasses are working. Uh, well, if they are, they're in my office. So, um, Verse 15, I do not ask, <laughs> Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, Jesus just said the world hates you as a Christian. Jesus just said we're being fought and opposed by a world that we don't really belong in and that the world actually hates us. And then he says this interesting thing. Reason would say, Father, the world hates them. Get them out of here quickly. Take them home. That's not what he says. He says, Father, the world hates them. They're not of the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I'm asking you to guard them from Satan the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this present darkness. So Jesus actually wants us to live in a darkened, anti-Christ world. You say, well, why? Well, I'm going to let you in on something. Because the gospel is not about just getting you to heaven. That's just not, I mean, otherwise he'd save you and he would immediately kill you. If that was the point of the gospel, to get your ticket punched to heaven. No, the gospel is about what John 17 is about. What is that? Glory for Jesus, glory for Jesus, glory for Jesus, glory for Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, he's glorified in heaven with no resistance. But on earth, there's a resistance. And so we are ambassadors of Christ. And so we've been left in this world and we are now picking up where Jesus left off. If Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and we are those who bear the glory of Jesus on the earth, then part of our mission is to destroy the works of the devil. And so we have got to turn the corner on this. I'm going to be careful not to run long down this rabbit trail because I hope to finish this message tonight. But friends, I want to tell you what's coming in the future, not just for this church. There's an awakening that is going to come to the church in America. It is coming. It is going to come in a fuller, un undeniable revelation of the glory of God. Part of it is going to be a boldness that hits the body of Christ to where we are no longer retreating from the devil because he's mean, big, bad, and scary. But we are literally taking on the armor of God and standing in the authority that we have. Jesus said, greater in you I am than the one that is in the world. He's literally saying, when I am in you and you are abiding in me, you are are outmatching the devil himself. And and friends, that's, that's the great secret that hell wants to keep from you. The secret that hell wants to keep from you is that you are actually stronger in Christ than every demon and all demons put together that they cannot thwart the power of God. And if we are abiding in Christ and operating in the Holy Spirit, and we are yielded and we are clean and holy, sanctified vessels, then friends, one of the realities is, is that this common enemy that we have, whose name is Satan and all of his demons, the Bible teaches us that we can actually put them to flight. Now, I don't know if you believe that or not, but but I'm going to tell you, you can't find the converse teaching of that anywhere in Scripture. You can't find anywhere in Scripture that, that Jesus says, run, hide, here comes Satan. It's just not in the Bible. But we are told that if you'll resist him, he'll actually run away from you. I don't think we know this. I think we hear that and we're like, yeah. Oh, okay. It's, it's like one of those half amens. It's a hey. A, <laughs> but we never finish it. <laughs> Friends, I, I I I'm telling you, when an awakening comes, um, Demons run from that. Why? They hate the glory of God, and awakening in the Spirit is always accompanied not by not just the presence of God, but the glory of God. And if there's one thing that the enemy can't stand, it is a manifestation of the glory of God in the midst of Christians. Why? Because that's the glory Satan wanted for himself. And he couldn't have it. And Jesus just said in John 17, Father, the glory that you gave me, I gave to them. We actually possess what he wants, but he doesn't want us to operate in what we possess. So he seeks to talk us out of believing that we actually possess what Satan always wanted. And if he can talk us out of it, we'll never begin to use it. We'll never begin to operate in it. So we have this common enemy. Listen, I love the fact I had lunch today with my friend Jude from Nigeria. Jude was uh, instrumental in my life in some very lonely days as a Baptist pastor where I was operating in these gifts Supernaturally, privately, didn't know what to do with them, felt like I couldn't tell anybody because Baptists aren't allowed to have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I was, I'm not being disparaging on Baptists. I agree with 99% of Baptist doctrine. I do believe the Baptists and all cessationists miss it on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Don't be offended by that, but I believe it's a doctrinal, theological issue. But I was trapped in this Baptist cocoon and, you know, just experiencing all this move of God. And Jude came into my office, a Nigerian prophet full of the power of God. And I was whimpering and whining about something, and he broke a yoke off of me that day. It was four four or five years ago, and just snapped it off of me. And God set me free that day. So I'm sitting at dinner with Jude tonight, and he's talking. He's telling me about some stuff from Nigeria. And I'm just thinking, I love this man. I so love this man. And I, I don't even care. He told me later on, he said, Jeff, when I lived in Europe and I lived in Nigeria, he moved from Nigeria to Europe, to New Jersey, to Atlanta. So he's been around a little bit. And he said, it wasn't until I got to the South that I really learned that that color was an issue with some. And I thought to myself, I was like, well, brother, at this table, it's not. You're sitting on that side of the table as a Nigerian pastor. I'm sitting over here as a little Southern Irish background guy. And all I'm sensing is Jesus eating dinner with us. And it was just so beautiful. What is that? Well, friends, it's the glory of God. It's the presence of God. It's the unity that we have in Christ. So, let's see how much we can get through with this. Um, if you need to leave, I understand. I apologize. We, well, you know the routine. <laughs> just the way we roll around here. So, all Christians—they're fought by Satan. They're opposed by the world but all Christians are set apart in Jesus and his truth. Verse 17 and verse 19. Listen what Jesus prayed. How many of you believe Jesus gets his prayers to the Father answered? Yeah, I think so. So, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify sounds like a real religious word. It's just a word that means set them apart. Set them apart in the truth. And Father, your word is truth. And um, for their sake, I consecrate myself. <laughs> what was he talking about? He's I don't know what that was. He said, I am going to the cross. That's the consecration. Jesus is saying this. Father, for their sakes, I'm fully separating myself under your work. Jesus said, I am saying this. I want them to know, fully consecrating myself. And Lord, I'm asking you to sanctify them through your truth. Now, friends, I, I, I want to hunker down just for a moment on this. We are set apart as Christians for the specific purposes of God. There are general purposes that cover the entire body of Christ. We could frame it up by saying every Christian that is anywhere on the planet Earth, the, the the will of God for their life, is that life might be spent bringing intentional glory to God. Now that can be done in innumerable ways. So it's not just about, okay, well, I don't preach and I don't sing and... Uh, I guess I can't glorify God. My friends, you glorify God wherever you are with whoever you are. And and it's innumerable. It's not about so much a task orientation as it is a greater awareness that your identity is in Jesus and you are sanctified. You are sanctified. That doesn't just mean externally moral. That's a part of it. But you are set apart. That means when you got saved, I want you to picture it like this. You're over here in the world. You're over here, even if you were a child, you're, you're part of the fallen world system. And when you call on the name of Jesus Christ and you trust that he died for your sin and you believe that God raised him from the dead the third day and that the price for your sin and your guilt was fully paid and when you trust in that and you yield yourself to that truth, receiving Christ as Lord, it is as this: the Lord does this. He says, this one is mine I take her, and I put her in my hand. This one is mine. I sanctify you and set you apart forever for my purposes. And he does that. And and so we are moved. We are set apart for his glory. Again, that's rooted in identity, and it's rooted in glory. And so he's done that for all of us. Why is this important? Because the reality is, is that the visible church, especially in this area of the world, it's like we think we're not all in the same hand. It's it's like we think we're, we're scattered. Listen, we are all in the hand of God together. And he doesn't have little compartments in his hand where he places this type of person and this type of person. We're just in his hand. He holds us all. And so if we will recognize that we're all fought by the world, we're all opposed by Satan, and yet we are all set apart by the same God for his glory, we can then do what's expressed in verse 18, where all Christians share in Jesus' mission. Watch this. Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now... He's praying for his disciples. It's very interesting because this prayer, if you go back and read all of it, Jesus is still with them. He's still in their presence. He's still on earth, but he's speaking as if he's already gone. And I thought about that today. I was like, Lord, what is, what is that all about? And this image, I'm not going to dogmatically declare that this was from the Father, but if it wasn't, it was still good. This, this image of, do you know when you're about to go on vacation but you're not out the door yet somebody calls you up and they're wanting to talk about blah 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 and you're like hey i'm already out the door my bags are packed i'm on vacation you're still standing in your living room you're still where you have been but in your heart and mind you're already at the beach or on the uh in the mountains or on the ship or wherever you're already gone this is kind of the expression that jesus has given in john 17 he's saying i've sent them out into the world where he's still with them he says earlier, he says, now I'm coming to you. Or he says to the disciples, now I go to the Father. And so this idea is that while he was on earth, he equipped them, he gave them everything they needed, he assigned them their identity in him, and he is releasing them. And they were to do it together. They were to change the world together as one. That same mission is yours and mine. Do, do you understand this? We don't have a different mission than Paul. Paul. We don't have a a downgraded or an upgraded mission that, that Peter had or that John had or even that Jesus had. We're actually continuing the work that Jesus began to do. And so, again, when we were, what's my purpose in life? I'm raising two kids, and they ask those questions. What do you think I'm going to be? What do, what do you want to do? And now Alicia's getting a little bit older, and she's starting to really sense some definition to what God wants her to do in life. But ultimately, friends, it's this wherever we are, with whoever we are, we are going to glorify God, and God's going to smile on that. So you can do that right now. When when he sends you out into the world and we share this mission with Jesus and with each other, it's not about, you know, you have to pack your bags and move to Uganda. That may be part of what God wants you to do, but we get to do it right here in Gwinnett County in Lawrenceville and and wherever we might be. And so that mission, again, is tied into um, our identity. Our mission is not our identity, but our mission proceeds from our identity. And so you don't have to spend your life trying to keep up with whatever the latest tweak is on the great plan of the Americans. I mean, think about this, guys. Think about the, the bill of goods that's been sold to generations of people in this land. And, and generations have lived for this um, fabricated American dream that has nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing. Nothing that literally millions of people have left earth they're like lemmings they just walk to the edge and they just boo they go over and and what are they what are they following they're believing the incessant beat to a war drum lie of the whole purpose of life success in life is to to work as hard as you can from age 18 to 65 Work it, try to have a little fun along the way, but if you don't, that's okay, because then you've got this 10-year window called retirement before you die. And, and that's what it's all about. Really? And, and what's crazy is it's almost unquestioned. And so everybody, by the time they're 15, 16 years old, they're being trained by school, they're being trained by everything that, from the world of finance. is just get enough money so for the last 10 to 15, maybe 20 years of your life, you can do whatever you want to do, and then you'll be successful. Or you could spend your life laying up treasures in heaven and serving Jesus and rooting down deeper in your identity and carrying your cross And losing your life so that you might find your life. And spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, which when believed will change or or secure the eternities of of countless numbers of people who will believe the gospel. And then when you get home to to heaven, you stand before the one who provided for that possibility, Jesus, you stand before him, and he says, you did so good, well done, my faithful servant, come into your rest and let me reward you. That just sounds like a better plan to me than, well, I'm 65 and I've gotten 20 years, and now let's live. Come on, folks. I I don't mean to be provocative with that, but I don't mind if it jars some people awake, says, you know what, that really is kind of a stupid plan compared to what the Son of God offers. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. Last thing, famous last words by pastors, but I mean it this time because I'm looking at the clock. Oh, I'm so tempted not to do this. You really need to read the blog tomorrow because it's all about these verses right here that I'm just going to have to quickly share. Jesus prayed for our shared glory. He prayed for our shared identity. He prayed for our shared joy. He prayed for our shared glory. Verse 20 and 21. Note this mind boggling prayer from Jesus. Listen to what he says. He's talking to the Father, and he prays for you. No, he prayed for you right here. I do not ask for these only. He's talking about the 12. I don't ask just for these, Father but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What does he pray? That they may all be one. To what degree? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. It's mind-blowing. It's, mind it's a mind-blowing prayer. I remember when I first got saved, I was reading this, and I... I got so excited when, for the first time, I realized Jesus prayed for me. I remember I picked up the phone, I called the man that led me to Jesus, like, dude, I'm reading John 17. And Jesus, God's son, prayed for me as if he didn't know the verse. And I'm like, yeah, it's right here, man. But what, I was so excited about it that I failed to see what he actually prayed. <laughs> what did he pray? The prayer specifically is this that. Those who believe in Jesus will be one, and not a superficial oneness, not the right hand of fellowship, good to see you. how you're doing this Sunday morning, doing great, brother, good, glad to hear it, brother, not that kind of stuff, but a oneness that parallels the oneness that the Father and the Son have with each other. And so when I read those words, I'm both inspired and sobered. I'm inspired that, wow, Jesus is really serious about me being one with every other Christian that I am able to be one with. And then I get sober because I think, wow, Jesus is really serious about me being one with every Christian I can be one with. See, this isn't a side issue. I do believe it has been treated somewhat as an option by us. I don't really need to be one with her because she bothers me. God bless her. I know Jesus loves you. I probably do, but I don't really like you, and I'm not going to be one with you. I'm not pointing at anybody. I'm being theoretical here. Somebody's like, he's talking to me. Lesser glories, we glory in lesser things. If we don't glory in Christ, well, matter of fact, let me just read that. If I stay behind the pulpit, I usually finish on time. C- consider a staggering conclusion. Why is it so important? Look at the staggering conclusion. Why did he want us to be one with each other on such a deep level? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus ties in our unity with each other to the reality of of unbelieving people becoming believing people. It's not the only place he does it. He does it in John 13 too. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. (laughs) Jesus did not say, everybody's going to know that you belong to me because of your absolute overlap and parallel in all things theological. Jesus did not say that all people would know that God the Father sent God the Son to save them because we, we agree on every single thing. My friends, the call to unity presupposes that there's going to be some things we struggle to be unified in. That's why he has to command unity. Unity is commanded because it's not easy and it can't be done in the flesh. It's very easy to separate and be disunified in the flesh. All we got to say is, you know, there's just too many things about this person or this group of people that I don't identify with, so I'm going to walk. I'm going to bounce. I'm out of here. And we go find people that look like us and act like us and worship like us and walk like us and talk like us, and smell like us, and dress like us, and, and we say, hey, man, we've got, we've got 20 of us now. Let's make a church. And we call, call it the first church of us. And you can join if you're like us. And if you're not like us, don't worry, because they, the first church of they is down the street, and you can go and be with them. You follow me on that? It may be a little sarcastic, but I'm actually thinking it reveals a truth. And what Jesus says is, yeah, there's actually only one church. It may be manifested in different local assemblies, but there's actually only one church, and you're all unified. And since you're all unified, and by the way, I'm the Lord. I get to tell you you're unified. You're all one together because I prayed it to the Father, and the Father actually answers my prayers. You are all one together. So since you are all one, be one. And so what does that mean? That means, oh, I'm going to have to die to myself. Well, how can I do that? Because I'm not living for my own glory and I'm not living for a lesser glory, and I'm not pursuing an inferior glory, but because we've reached this place where our lives are all about the glory of Jesus, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be easy to be in unity with other people's lives who are all about the glory of Jesus. Why? Because we're focused on his glory and not all the little things that divide us, irritate us, discourage us, or separate us we don't quit on the tiny hills. Why? Because we're called to ascend the highest hill, which is the hill set for the glory of God. And so we we recognize that when we do that, the world is able to see, wow, these people really love Jesus and they really love each other. Maybe he really did. Maybe God really did send this one named Jesus. And so mercifully, last two verses. we pursue his divine longing. Watch this. The glory that you have given me, Father, I have given to them. Just go chew on that a little bit. Jesus said, the glory that God gave the Son, the Son gave to the church, so that they may be one even as we are one. That's the hinge verse in John 17. What's the key to unity? It's right there. The effect that we may be one, even as God and the Father and God the Son are one, that's the effect of what? Us receiving the glory, operating in the glory, living for the glory of Christ. The key for us being one with each other is that we are all pursuing the glory of Jesus together. Jesus said, the reason I gave them the glory is so that it would empower their oneness. Now, friends, there's a lot to wrestle through in this. Jesus adds in that same passage, the end passage there, he also prays that we would become perfectly one. Do you know how good it is that's in there? Because it illustrates the reality that some of this is a process. We are one, but he's going to allow us to become one. So in other words, just because we haven't perfectly executed that oneness up to this point, just because we've allowed for things to divide us, just because we've missed, just because we have idiosyncrasies in us or maybe prejudices in us that cause us to divide and segregate and and skip out on one another as the body of Christ, Jesus' prayer continually over us as the high priest is, Father, let them become one, let them become one, let them become one, let them become one. So in other words, he's constantly inviting us to step in a process that he started and that has never stopped. He's making us one. When we get to glory, and I'm done, when we get to glory, and all of us are there, (laughs) there's not going to be an angel with a megaphone saying, Baptist over here, we got our Lutherans over here, non-denominational charismatics, y'all got the big loud corner in the back. Just doesn't work that way. That's what we do down here. But when we get to glory, it's just going to be the reality of the oneness that we actually have always had but failed to recognize on earth. So here's my commission to you as the kids are roaming the halls now because I've gone so long. Here's my commission to you. Start being one with each other. It's not that complicated. Love your neighbor like you would love yourself because you are loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love him first and foremost. Love your neighbor secondly. And let's just keep pursuing the glory of Jesus.